here we are. It's Sunday, the 10th of December. I've got to say, in Devon at least, it's a pretty cold, wet, dark, damp evening. And it's been a bit like that today. But I have managed to get out with the dog for a walk, which was lovely. But uh, the important thing for today is that I've got another gutsy woman with me. And this is uh, Kimberly Isherwood, who's one of the ladies that has put together Public Child Protection Wales. She's been working for a long time now to alert the public to what has been going on in schools, particularly around young primary um, age school children, grooming them in some pretty unpleasant sexual matters. And it's been Kim and the team around her that have stood up to warn the public. So in my mind, she fully qualifies as a gutsy woman. I also know and remember, um, Kim, that you did a you did a parachute jump at one stage. So I'm going to say welcome. Tell us about that parachute jump. Uh, well, that parachute jump, Brian, was actually a, a charity event. So that's a charity event that I put together for ADHD and autism. Uh, we raised money for two local organisations, ADHD Bridgend and Heronsbridge School for Autistic Children. And I took a team of eight women up uh, to jump out through a plane. So that was, yeah, so that's just a series of one of the mad things that I have done. Uh, I've done quite a lot of charity work in all fairness, but it's always things that's uh, community-based. And there's there's nothing I won't do, nothing too hot or too heavy. Okay, well, I'm going to say straight away that jumping out of an aeroplane takes some guts. Um, many, many, many years ago, I was supposed to do a parachute jump with another guy. Um, this is while I was still in the Navy and uh, something came up and I, I couldn't manage the, uh, the planned spot. So the other guy went on and he did the jump. And I said to him afterwards, how was it? And he said, well, he said, jumping out of the balloon, because what they used to do is take them up, I think, 400 feet. This balloon would go up and your first jump was out of the balloon. And he said that was a nightmare because you go up and it's deathly quiet. You've just got a little bit of a wind, uh, noise of the wind blowing through the rigging of the balloon. Uh, and he said, I found that really, really scary. But when we then immediately went up in the aeroplane, it was just different. You jumped out the back and it was like you didn't immediately fall. So... You did it. You're the gutsy woman. What was the sen sensation like for your first parachute jump? Well, it's, it's it only lasts 45 seconds. You're only free falling for 45 seconds and it's all over. But you replay it over in your head for about 15 hours afterwards, you know. The first thing for me, first of all, it was it was beautiful blue up there because on the ground it was a, it was an overcast day. It was very cloudy. So first of all, I couldn't get over how bright and blue it was up there. And I, I was already buzzing, Brian, because there was a team of us, you know, I was with a team of women. First time for us all anyway. So it was already that buzz going on. And then as my friends were going out, I was one of the last because I had a cameraman with me. And as my friends were going out, they were like upside down, going through the air. I couldn't imagine myself doing that. But when you're actually doing it, it doesn't really feel like you are. And then by the time you feel yourself come through the, you know, you realise you've come through the clouds then, you're just amazed by the, gro the ground beneath you. It's like a patchwork quilt. 
And it's just, there's just so much going on, you know, there's so much going on. Plus then you have to uh, respond ready for your landing. So um, yeah, it's just a buzz. But I remember the buzz lasted well up until about half past five in the morning. I actually had to Google the after effects of a, of a skydive because I couldn't believe how I felt afterwards. The adrenaline that was pumping through me, I just felt like on another planet. But that feeling apparently can last up to five days. So um, that was definitely a buzz. It was a really good buzz for me. And I'm afraid of heights. So um it was definitely, uh, yeah, out of this world, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to say more power to you because uh, I think that takes a lot of guts to do. In fact, my nephew's done a parachute jump as well, and he he said he got a real buzz out of it. Um, but you did it, and uh, well done. Thank you. Now, we had a chat, Kim, a few months ago or a couple of months ago, um, we were following up on some stuff to do with Public Child Protection Wales. But you got going a little bit about you and and what you'd done in life, what you'd experienced in life that led you through to a point where you were beginning to challenge what uh, the establishment was doing. Are you, are you happy? Do you feel comfortable to share with the audience a little bit about you as the person and what you've experienced in your life before you got near to campaigning with matters to do with sexualization of children? Yeah, so for me, I was born in a in a pretty well-off working class family, never wanted for anything, um, house, immaculate house, you know, great Christmases, perfect 2.4 children when we were a family unit. It was quite a volatile um, environment. Very often, it would be a one-parent family. Sometimes we would be a family. So it was, it was very rocky, you know. Um, by the age of 14, I was I found myself homeless on and off from the age of 14 to 21. And during that time, I began partying, as most teenagers do. That was the only thing that mattered to me. And I ended up in a youth offenders institute. And like, like, I, like I said, I came from a um, pretty well-off working-class family, Hadn't really experienced drugs or anything like that. Um, so the, the recreational drugs were very new to me. I hadn't experienced things like um, heroin and cocaine or anything like that. So when I went to a Youth Offenders Institute, I was actually one of the oldest on the wing because I had just turned 18. So everybody there were like mostly age 15 to 17. So in appearance as well, you could see I was different to them. Um, they a lot of them had rotted teeth. They all, well, I would say 90% of them had um, self-harm injuries, severe self-harm injuries. Um, so I felt, I felt, I was very judgmental, I'll be honest with you, very judgmental for the first few weeks, you know. Um, I, I didn't really understand where these girls come from. I thought that I weren't supposed to be there. I remember as well, because of my own background, um, I was very much against these young girls because a lot of them had become mothers. They were having their children removed um, through forced adoption. And I remember them going on to visits for the last visit. And I, I was actually in favour of the adoption. And the reason why I was in favour of the adoption, because I couldn't understand how I was never removed from the environment I was in. So I already had a kind of hatred towards women, towards um, mothers. 
And I remember sitting there one day and one of them said to me, have you got any children? And I snapped and I said, are you real? Do you think I'd be here if I had children? But my whole outlook of that changed within six weeks because you get to know these girls. And this was in 2001. So back then, um, entrapment laws were not a thing. So the police would um, take some medication. I, I believe it was Subutex. They would go out with these young girls, um, shoplifting in Woolworths, go back to crack dens, smoking, drugs with them. The girls were trafficked. Um, obviously, that's where they became pregnant. And what I, what I actually saw was the girls' um, case files. So they would have very grainy stain, um, still images from CCTV back in the day. And that's when I started to realize what was actually going on. So I think by about six weeks into my sentence, my sentence was two years. I was there for 11 and a half months. I went to three different establishments. So within six weeks, my entire outlook has changed. I had discovered institutional child sex abuse, um, child trafficking, the police, you know, this whole thing with the police. I grew up in um, a Nicole in mining, mining village in Wales, where the police, you know, we, we did call some of them Robocop. It was it was a time where, where of pinched cars and stuff like that. So it was quite lively. But, you know, there was also, you could speak to the officers. You know, I never, I never experienced that side of things. Like I said, I never really experienced crime until I was in that situation myself, you know? And that I just had, a, I just developed a burning passion then, I because I understood that none of us was meant to be there. I think out of the whole sentence I were there, I, there was about five girls I came across that were meant to be in that environment. All of the others, they had a story. All of them had something happen to them, and almost all of them came from the system. It was the system that had destroyed them. And obviously later on in life, um, I, I left, obviously I had come out of prison then. Um, I, be, I was pregnant at the age of 21. I had a son who was born, uh, he's got autism and ADHD. So I still had this passion for um, the sex abuse in the institutions. Every time I discussed it, people would say I was OTT because obviously the people I would speak to hadn't experienced or learned what I had learned about. And because I was in three different establishments, Brian, I was around a lot of women from all different parts of the UK. So this wasn't a handful of people, you know, this, I believe that this was a good representation of what was going on, you know, in, in this world, this, this world that we've grown up in. And then after having my son, um, I, I obviously had to perform well as a mother. And I got into the field then of social policy, looked into my own background, looked at how I ended up where I was, realized that I was the lucky one because I was on the child protection register while I was homeless. I was reading notes from uh, my head teachers to the social workers and things like that. So I realized then that I wasn't different to them. I was one of them and it was just location and chance that made things different for me. You know, so even though I was in a pub at the age of 11 playing pool with all men all around me, they looked out for me. They, you know, it was a completely different environment to what these girls had experienced. And I think the common denominator for these girls at the time was city, city life, you know. So that's just something you can never forget. You can never, ever forget that. And I also remember thinking, how can you solve it? 
And I knew it was impossible because these girls would just go back out to the same lifestyle. And they used to say things like, see you on the next merry-go-round because they were coming back, you know? And I always used to think, oh, this is impossible to, um, to address in any way, shape or form until the sex education. So this whole RSE issue brings the criminological aspect and the social policy aspect into one here. And this is what I see as a golden opportunity to address the institution. That's an area nobody likes to discuss. That's an area that's always buried, hidden away. But, by, but this now gives us a mainstream approach, a mainstream approach to safeguarding, something we can all discuss, we can all recognize, and this is an indirect approach to making this the safest place for raising and educating children, because it's not impossible, Brian. This work has been done. We've got academics out there who have already done this stuff. However, it's hidden in journals, and you've got to pay £40 to read their work. So what we are now about is, this is kind of like using all of my past and everything I know to work towards a future, a future that keeps children out of the institution. And the only way you can do that is by addressing what's going on in the institution. So for me, um, I feel my life, I've, I've had moments recently, and, I, and there was a time a few nights ago where I sat um, I, and I watched myself again on a documentary from when I was in prison. And for the first time of watching that documentary, I did actually cry. I cried throughout there because I couldn't believe the journey, how I've gotten here. And like I said, don't forget, I came from a well-off working class family. My mother was a talented painter of porcelain. She painted the bells for Princess Diana and Charles Wedding. You know, she was in the paper for that. My father's a, a toolmaker, engineer, very talented there as well in his field you know so I, I didn't experience I would never have foreseen myself recognizing this world let alone being in a position where actually this is an opportunity this horrific thing is happening to our children however we can now shine light on the hidden children by working on the ones that we're all looking at and bringing in policies safeguarding procedures, actual real training, Brian, because we've gone into everyone's training now, and, and now we're forced to looking into these policies and this training. We know it's not adequate. We know it's not rocket science, and we are now using this as a golden opportunity to at least try. And every single month that we are working, I actually feel that, we, that this is doable. We're getting closer and closer to that. And it's actually really wonderful because some of the girls that I um, spent some time inside with, they have um, tracked me down now or they've been watching my videos over RSE thinking, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? And I keep saying this, if it wasn't for my time in Youth Offenders, meeting all those girls and getting to understand the world we actually live in, I don't think I would be fit for this fight right now. Thank you very much for that, Kim. Thank you very much for telling me I'm muted. I'm doing this all the time now. It's age related, clearly. Um, just on on time scale, when when was it that you started to stand up, particularly about the sexualisation of children in schools? Tell us about what you were doing and how Public Child Protection Wales came into being. 
Right, so for about 15 years, I've obviously shared um, documented my experience as a mother, raising my son on my own, um, additional needs, supporting parents in schools, supporting parents with social service cases. So the truth is, I've actually always done this, but now with the sexualization of children in schools, it's just on roids. That's the way I describe it, it's just like on roids. And we've been doing that since 2020. So I first discovered it January 2020, and by June, we had a team of strangers ready to go hell for leather on it. Okay, that, that's good. So let's ask the question, how, how did you come to know those strangers? How did that group of people come together? It was wonderful. It was, um, COVID was going on, so everybody was on lockdown. All these different groups were appearing for different issues. I somehow ended up in different messenger groups and I just raised the issue and, and the people that actually listened ended up being in another messenger group. Um, some of those people have now fallen off the way, but from that group, we've, we've just developed this incredible core group, you know? We were all strangers before this and it's all come off the back of COVID really, because I wouldn't have been in these groups with these people otherwise. Right. That, that's a pretty interesting point, isn't it? And I suppose that that's true for a lot of people that during COVID, when they were shut up in their homes and their only outlet was to get on the Internet and start to look at what was happening and ask questions. And certainly UK Column would say that we had a tremendous boost in um, membership and interest in what we were doing in that period. So um, although lockdown was horrible for a lot of people, lockdown for the UK column was actually very, was a very beneficial period. It's strange, isn't it, how things work? That's when I discovered UK column, actually, Brian, as well. <laughs> really? That's when I became a member, yes. Okay, well, go on. And can you tell us any more then? What, what were you looking for? For me, um, obviously, I'm a single parent. Um, there was this pandemic going on in the world and for me uh, Boris Johnson wasn't acting fast enough so you can imagine I I, I was petrified um, Boris Johnson wasn't acting fast enough I'd removed my son from school um, and, I, and I don't get anxiety but for two weeks solid I was, I was riddled with anxiety I spent my birthday in bed and that's the 17th of March so days before everybody else was on lockdown I was on lockdown before anybody else, you know. I got about two weeks into things and I thought to myself, I have to start researching to keep us alive. So first of all, I had the coronavirus act come out. So I was I thought, right, the, de the devil's in the details. I was looking for coronavirus medical papers and things like that. Now, prior to this, Brian, I was posting links on social media telling people they need to protect themselves, ensure their uh, employers are protecting them, making sure they're looking after them. But when I started looking into coronavirus and I found, I think it was like 850,000 medical papers and I was scrolling back to the year I was born, 1983. I remember being sat on my bed and, and well, I, I think I just felt the colour drain from my face. And by this point, right, and I had bought, I bought um, oxygen machines, masks. I was getting ready to keep those three alive, you know? And um, yeah, so I, I had a massive awakening there. I discovered a paper that was SARS-CoV-1, um, where it was saying that they had cured 1,000 people with rebarbarin, but didn't bother to record the effectiveness. 
So as I was saying stuff like this and on social media, other people were sending me links. So then, and I was in the middle of moving at the time. So every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, I'd be decorating the new house with Yuki Coleman in the corner. Okay, that, that's really good. Thank, thank you for sharing that one. And, I, and I'm glad you came into contact with us, um, Kim, because at the end of the day, it's been brilliant to be able to report on what you've been doing. And hopefully we've been we've been helping you in our own particular way. Oh, massively, massively. And we're so grateful. Kim, you, you've stood up to be counted. You've been a gutsy woman. What have what have you learned from putting your head above the parapet to speak out and particularly about the issue of the sexualization of children? How have you been treated? Well, I've been treated far better than I expected, to be honest with you, because I already knew what was going on in the institution. Um, being a single parent, you've always got that fear there when you know what goes on. I learned about it in the Youth Offenders Institute, you know. So if for me, um, nothing has been a surprise. I'm actually quite surprised that we haven't had rent a mob sent to us. You know, we've learned a lot uh, about what's actually going on and what's orchestrated among society because we're all ordinary people and we haven't had much backlash apart from the government. The government have put out statements saying it's misinformation. We've obviously had the government in court. They have threatened to remove our assets. There's been intimidation tactics through the government. Everything has come from government and public office. With regards to everyday people, we haven't really had much backlash. Um, I was expecting a few problems from the services as well. But what I did, you see, Brian, because I knew what to expect, I didn't send the first email till I had 400 people in a group. You know, so I, I kind of had a game plan. I was aware of the sex education from 2013. So I already knew, you know, I had, I there were seven years of campaigns that I had seen fail. So I already kind of had a game plan for safeguarding myself. I kind of had a game plan for the campaign. And the game plan for the campaign was, don't do the same as what everybody else did. So, and that was simple. So we didn't debate LGBT, we recruited LGBT and we educated them of what was going on. Yeah, and this this makes sense to me because at the end of the day, it's it well, it seems to me at least that what we're up against is something that's really powerful. It's really dark, and it wants to eat all of us. So I've felt for a long time it it doesn't matter what group you're in at the moment. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what religion you are. Um, you know whether you're straight or gay. The thing assembling itself is bigger than all of us yes. and it wants to divide us all. We've, we've got problems we need to sort out, but at the moment there's something that's growing which is bigger than all of us. That's that's what I see. Well, this is it. What what we did here, um, we took everybody on the journey. Like I said, I, I know what the services are like. I fought for, you know, just get a diagnosis for your child with additional needs. That's a battle in itself, you know. But once you understand how the services operate anyway, you kind of, you know what's going on, but other people do not, okay? They simply do not. They, they got this thing that we are protected by the schools, we're protected by social services, we're protected by the government. They simply wouldn't do that. So for us, we had to take them on a journey. We had to take them through the consultation process. We had to take them through the petitions committee. We, even though we knew it was a waste of time, 
we had to take every single person along that on that journey with us. So our blows were not personal blows. They became blows to the country. So that's how we said about it. We had um, we did not talk about LGBT at all for 18 months. And I don't even think we touched on the gender for two years. So every move we made, we, we were working in the background for the next move. What people saw publicly, um, we, you know, we were working on other things privately. So we had to take people along on a journey. And um, and I think that really did pay off in the end, you know? Yeah, this makes sense to me because we, we need many people to be working together at the moment to challenge what's happening. And differences, minor differences, I think they can be put aside at the moment because there's there's something much bigger to go for. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Kim, what, what about MPs? Because... Um, I'm going to say I've got a bit of a thing about MPs because there's only a tiny fraction of them which are brave enough to stand up and speak out at the moment. I mean, Andrew Bridgen is doing such a brilliant job at the moment. Um, but And he says that there are other MPs in the background who agree with what he's talking about and support his position. But it's clear that many of those those MPs, they're still hiding in the shadows. Have you had any support for what you've been doing with P Public Child Protection Wales from MPs? So there has been some members of the Senate who were obviously on our side. Um, they were all independent and neither of them got back in on the next election. The Conservatives are pretending that they're in opposition. However, I personally wrote to all 16 the same day we issued Jeremy Miles with a letter before action asking them to stand with their convictions and publicly support the 87% of the population that rejected this RSE. Um, only one of them was willing to meet, the rest was tumbleweed. Uh, we're watching a pantomime here. There has been some MPs uh, contact us, so we have had different, different parties as well, um, but we've had people contacting us like from the south of England because they've seen podcasts, their constituents have sent them podcasts, They've asked me for evidence to back things I've said, you know, with regards to the correct terminology, not being able to safeguard. Um, they have liaised with the Department for Education. We've proven there there's no evidence to back it. So even though um, there has been communications, um, people are, no, not really, but there's an election coming now. So we did have a bit of interest in our last demonstration in London. A few politicians went to come and speak. Everybody's welcome to speak. We never turn anybody away, um, you know, but that's only because we want their followers to understand there's real people out there fighting. So with regards to politics, no, what we are doing is we are actively, um, we'd even put in, a, we put in a big team through the DBS process. We are training people up for advocacy. We're empowering people because we no longer believe in the political makeup of this country. And we also know that history tells us that nobody at the top has ever changed anything at the top. So the consultation process and the petition process, that was simply just to show everyone there's, there's nothing there for us. We did that just for demonstration to people. We know nobody at the top has ever changed anything at the top. But we also know that the people at the bottom, when they do stand together on something, they have 100% success rate. And that is where I am focusing my energy right now. 
So, Kim, what what about the men out there? Because I, I look out the window, I watch what's happening. We're in these really very dark, troubled times with what I I see as a dictatorship installing itself where it's it's going to control every part of our lives, whether that's personal life, individual's life or a family life or your children. But to me, the men, the average man certainly is not doing their job. It's been the women that have been standing up to be counted and often doing that in a way that requires some real guts. And that was one of the reasons why I decided over the Christmas period to do these these interviews with what I'm calling gutsy women. You're in the middle of the battle at the moment. How do you see the men? Where are they? Well, I come from a, a South Wales Valley and, you know, we're big on rugby, boxing, motocross sports. I don't see anyone. Um, I am I am absolutely devastated and disappointed. Like I said earlier, Brian, um, my safety as a teenager was reliant on the men in my village. And I'm massively, massively disappointed. Um, I, I feel like I don't recognize a lot of people, you know, but I don't want to take away from the men who are supporting us because there are men out there supporting us who are phenomenal in what they do, you know, in the research, in the legal department, the filming of us. So I don't want to take away from the small handful, but that is a small handful. Like I said, we, we are big on manly sports here, Brian, all big fighters. They're all in the gym. Where are they now? Where are they now? I'm absolutely devastated. And I think it's quite embarrassing because I am five foot tall. I think I'm about seven and a half stone now. And I've got to stand up. I've got to stand up. That's hugely disappointing. I should be behind these men. As I, I was, you know, I grew up doing a during a time where women and children first. So what's going on here? You know, so I'm massively disappointed. Um, it's, it's devastating. I honestly thought, Brian, I honestly thought, the wait, wait until my friends find out about this. When my friends find out about this, heads are going to roll. And nothing's, it's like, it's like tumbleweed. I don't know what it's actually going to take for the men to realise what's going on here. Yeah, and this is incredible, isn't it? Well, we could say men, but if we say fathers... What is it with the fathers? They don't understand what's going on. And they're not, they're not, either they're not interested or they don't understand what's going on. But I don't believe that because so much of this is being talked about. Or we come down to the basics. They haven't got the guts to stand up and do what you're doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm here. I decided it was time to speak out about this a bit. I've said publicly several times that if you want to meet, um, a complete coward meet a retired, a senior retired British military officer because they're all out there. But where are they? Are they speaking out in America? We've got Colonel Douglas McGregor talking about the reality of what's going on and he's challenging the wars. He's challenging what the American government is doing. So there's one in America, but I don't see any senior people in this country. And I wonder where they are. Are they all in the golf club and they're worried about their reputation if if they're caught speaking out and their name will be 
muddied in the golf club bar is that what they're worried about but i i found it i found it quite incredible um if we if we pick at that a bit okay i've i've got my military background but the people who are doing the work tend to be people who were soldiers or people who were non-commissioned officers those sorts of ranks are doing something the senior people nothing and i i think they're frightened which is an incredible statement really exactly i think i think it's quite cowardice to be honest with you we've contacted academics um who, who i've referenced in my own work brian don't forget now i've got a degree in criminology here so my field is institutional child sex abuse you know it, that is my passion so i'm referencing people's work and i reach out to them and they and i get nothing back it's an absolute disgrace it's made me realize the control that goes on i was considering doing my phd and why would i waste three years of somebody controlling my work somebody marking my work who is literally only one hundred thousand words in front of me but a million miles behind me in life experience, they'll never get to see what I've seen. They'll never get to live. You know, this is the difference between professionals and experts, okay? Professionals are people who are merely paid. They just need to know enough. When you're an expert, that's there for life. And we are experts of our own life, you know? And we've got people who don't really engage with us on, on a daily basis. I mean, making decisions about us, you know, and when we do call in on these people, these people that get all the glory for their work, they don't put their money where their mouth is, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Well, some some of them are clearly frightened. There's no doubt about it. Um, there's a lady, I know, PhD, who's working as a professor. And she is, when she started to speak out, and speak out, what does that mean? She was giving her personal opinion on a number of issues, particularly to do with covid 19 and lockdown and the um her workplace turned on her absolutely turned on her to the extent you are not allowed to say this well she's absolutely allowed to say it because it's free speech but we definitely see that people are being put under pressure but a lot of them it's like they see what's going on with their eyes they see it or their ears they hear it but it doesn't appear to connect with their brains. It's, I believe that we're looking at people, we can say they're heavily reframed, but it's also like they're mesmerized. They're in a trance. Yeah. Yeah. It is that way. Or they kind of, so we got those types of people. We got the ones then who are, who I describe as hiding behind walls to throw stones. You know, they, 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 they throw a few stones if they can hide behind something. And then we've just got the people who are all out there taking the blows on behalf. And I think a lot of these people are hoping that we are going to solve everything when we simply cannot solve everything. We as a collective can solve things, but don't expect a small group of people to fix this for you. You are, you've got to, you've got to fight yourself. At the end of the day, this is what I'm trying to, I'm trying to empower people to realize that you do not need a leader. Because when you've got a leader, very often it is the leader is attracts most of the crowd, you know? And if something happens to that leader or they're taken out, already that group is, you know, is, is fractured. A lot of people will fall away. But if you lead by example and you stand on your own two feet, then you stand together, you're talking a whole new ball game there, you know? So what, what we're looking at is empowering individuals. 
giving people the courage to stand up for themselves. You know, and I'm, unfortunately, the only people who are actually doing that are the people who are falling foul to the system, the people with no choice. Yeah, this, this is a really good point. I mean, we, the UK columns, often saying to the audience, you know, don't don't just take it, do something. And do something simple. In the beginning, do something simple that you feel comfortable you can do. Send an email, write a letter. Because just taking that step of doing something, that empowers you. Yeah. When you've done it once, you can do it again. And then you can encourage somebody else to do it. And then there's two of you. And then two are stronger than one. So this business about doing something and um, I'm not even sure where the expression came from, but it's it, it's a lovely expression, I think. And that is that action conquers fear. And I think does. this is true. Fear can paralyze people. The thing is, with action, with action, you get faith and faith replaces fear. You know, and I, I find things with stupid example, but me and technology, I'll sit there for a fortnight thinking about something else. Only going to take me 10 minutes to do. You know, and that's very often what happens here. It's a lot easier when you do take that first step. Like, I, for a long time, I was waking up every morning knowing what goes on in the institutions, knowing I'm a single parent of two children, and every single morning you just wake up and you've got that fear, but you just have to put that fear behind you. And just re remember, you're doing something that's right. You're not making this up. You're not lying. This is really happening. And doing nothing... Is not going to achieve anything, you know. You only lose when you quit. So you got to get up and you got to do something. It doesn't matter what you're fighting right now. You have to be fighting something. Kim, just take us into you've been fighting what's been happening with with particularly young children in schools, the sexualization of those children. What is this policy? Where does it come from? So it's come from the United Nations and the World Health Organization. So they've spent many years, um, the United Nations UNESCO framework is what is actually um, being used in a lot of schools around the world right now. That has come off the back of a document from the World Health Organization who have been working really, really hard on all the countries of Europe and UK to bring in something called comprehensive sexuality education. This comprehensive sexuality education starts from birth and is based on sexual rights, um, theories such as being sexual from birth, you're born in the wrong body, but it's essentially come from America really, you know, um, you can keep tracing it back, but right now at this moment in time, it's coming down from the United Nations. Okay, so, for anybody in the audience who's listening to us, what is the danger of this education? What, what's really motivated you to stand up and say this has got to stop? Okay, so it's based on three theories. The first theory is we are sexual from birth. As, as you know, with my background, when I first came across a document um, in 2013, this World Health Organization telling saying that age not to four should be doing early childhood masturbation. I wanted to understand where that came from, why people would think that's okay. And that's what I discovered, the theory sexual from birth. This comes from the work of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, which is based on the sexual abuse and rape of children. Uh, first of all, young boys and then young girls. Uh, uh, young boys from two months old. 
Then there's the gender ideology, which again, when you trace that back to Dr. John Money, he too uh, was into the mutilation and sexual abuse of children. If you look at his study into David Reimer, you will see again, that's built off a load of lies and abuse. And then you've got the queer theory as well. So this is something we're supposed to be hip and we cool. But when you look at the queer theorists, you know, they are out to smash all um, heteronormativity, all binaries that, that we consider normal in society, and also the binary between adult and child. So they believe children and adults are equal in every way, including sex. So um, this, these documents are now promoting sexual and reproductive rights. And those sexual and reproductive rights as well are saying how, well, basically we're sexual from birth, we should be exercising our sexual rights. For us here in Wales, what that means now with this new legislation, the government has successfully argued that nobody has parental rights. We only have parental responsibility. So this is very important for everybody in the UK because they have argued this using European case law. So what we do have now, we have children from birth who have children's rights. They don't have parental rights protecting them. There's just parental responsibility, but they now have sexual and reproductive rights. And this education is there to enforce those sexual and reproductive rights and encourage a sex positive approach to life from birth. Right. I mean, I I know a bit about this because you've taught me a lot and I, I find it incredible. To me, it is like something, somebody, a group of people, they're stalking our children. Yes, absolutely. And, and this can be traced back, you know, um, decades. So if you look at PI, for instance, Paedophile Information Exchange, they campaigned for a comprehensive sexuality education where children lead the way, where children can say what feels good, know what feels good, and listen to your body. Now, trigger warning here, anybody out there who has been sexually abused, you will know it is not always violent, and you will get biological reactions in the genitalia. This document is encouraging the, um, the, the pleasurable feelings within the genitalia then, and promoting that as pleasure, Whereas the only kind of sexual safeguarding is sexual violence. So basically, the only thing they're saying is wrong is sexual violence. And that is something that the paedophile information exchange as well was saying back in the 80s. And it, it's very interesting. You've gone back to that because there was um, there was Pi and there was also another one, which I think was PAL, Paedophile Action for Liberty. And one of those organizations I, I believe it was the labor mp harriet harman who was supporting it at the time so we had the extraordinary position that people who clearly had sexual designs desires on children or focus towards children were receiving support from members of the labor party from within the political system and this this did actually break surface it was reported in the media at the time but then it all faded away as if it had disappeared but clearly it hasn't disappeared because now it's resurfaced not in in a in in a what do we call it a pressure group pi or pal 
now it's resurfaced in 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 um, documents and policy that's coming from the UN. This should this should be a huge alarm bell for the average person. Yes, and if I uh, just want to backtrack a little bit there, and Harriet Harman, Harriet Harman, let's not forget she then went on to become a child minister. You know, this is this is what people, a lot of people don't realize, Brian. Yeah, it all went quiet. Then this woman became children minister. You know, so um, th these people just go on to be promoted. Doesn't matter what their views are. Yeah. And, and the other man that I think I remember from somewhere around that period was Jack Straw, because I think at one point when he was, um, what was he? Home Office Minister or something like that. But uh, And this was reported in the Express newspaper. Pretty sure it was the Express. But he was basically saying that children who were abused in care shouldn't be able to speak out to the media. And even the Express was astonished at this and sort of said, well, why would you want to do this? But actually, the average adult should be able to put two and two together. And the answer as to why you would want to stop children who are being abused from speaking out, crying out for help, you'd want to stop that. There's only one reason. Yeah, absolutely, because you don't want them finding out names. You don't want, yeah, you don't want people finding out what's actually going on. It's it's incredible, isn't it? And you know what's going on anyway, Brian. You, you can't see any other system. You know, the, you see the world through a whole different lens. Yeah. What, what about the media? We don't like calling them the mainstream media these days. Legacy media is much better. But you've been campaigning. Everything you're doing is evidence-based. So you're talking about the documents or the actual policy documents that are coming through the um through the education system in UK and in Wales. What's been the reaction from mainstream media in UK? Um they don't want to touch us basically. Um we we will give interviews in length about anything. Um they'll bring up things like conspiracy theories, peddling lies, dangerous. And we've got a I've got a full answer for absolutely everything. So I've given lots of 40-minute interviews and only appeared for 23 seconds. I've been kicked off Jeremy Vine live on air for putting Miley in class, you know, showing the world that she didn't know what she was talking about. It's been horrific, to be honest with you. Um, absolutely nothing. Wales Online, we've shown them evidence. All they've done is parrot what Welsh Government is saying. They, um, they don't want to know. This was the most high-profile case in the UK, Brian, this this RSE case. What happened in that case is, is going to affect the whole of the UK. So because we know they all adopted comprehensive sexuality education together in March 2017 with the view for legislative changes. We're all at different stages of this implementation. So, you know, this, this was the most high-profile case in the UK that the media ignored. Yeah. That's the question, isn't it? When it hangs in the air, you say, how can this possibly be? And it must be because they're complicit. Somehow they've been brought into the game and their silence says that they are actually working in the background to promote educational policy, which is designed to sexualize children and therefore make them even more vulnerable to, to abuse in the wider frame of things. It's pretty incredible. 
Mariana Spring, has she sprung in your direction? To tell you the truth, I don't think she's, I don't think she has the guts. Um, these hit pieces don't work on ordinary people, Brian. That's, that's what they don't realise, you know? Every single time they've tried to write something or do something bad to us, it's backfired. We've had more followings. They've resorted to completely ignoring us because we're only dealing in facts. Okay, so let's put a few things together. Um, you told me that you're five foot, is that right? And I think you mentioned seven stone, and I'm thinking, blimey, is that true? I'm absolutely tiny, Brian. That's the first thing people say when they meet me. Look how small she is. Yeah, well, I'm a pretty short guy myself, actually, and I, I think they always, people underestimate you when they meet you because you're, you know, you're the height you are. But... Um, you're five foot, you're seven stone, you're clearly a gutsy woman. What would you say to the other women out there? What would you say to the women to get them to pay attention and stand up? What time do you call this? <laughs> Come on. The thing is, this this is the biggest, this is the biggest um universal attack, assault on our children. We are about to witness the death of innocence and we, can, we can't sit around complaining about it, okay? We've got to act on it. So basically, this has happened on our watch. We have to do something about it. If I can do something about it, I come from nowhere. I'm sat here. I've told you where I've come from. Nothing is too hot or too heavy for me. So, you know, I'm pretty easygoing woman. If I'm raising this alarm now, I'm putting myself out there to take these blows. I'm telling you these blows aren't that bad. What have you got to lose? I'll tell you what you've got to lose. Innocence from this world. Every single one of us know a child out there. Childhood is just a small window. We need to protect it. And we can do it. We will do it. When women stand up, mountains are moved. And together we'll move mountains with tough picks. Brilliant. And what about your message for the men? Well, for the men, it's again, what time do you call this, boys? We need the men more than anything. You know, we just, we need the manpower. We're, we're doing all the work. We are doing all the work for you. All we need is you there with us. This is happening to your children. The worst part of all is if there was a paedophile at the end of the street, everybody would be out in pitchforks. This is, what difference is this? You know, there really is no difference in this. But the women in this country need the men. This country needs some masculinity. It's not toxic. It's needed. You know, it's needed in abundance right now. We need the men more than anything. And if there was anything we could do to get the men going, you better believe we would do it. You know, you don't have to do every work, boys, but we need the men behind us right now. You know, that's why society is the way it is, because of all the broken families. This is why the politicians are getting away with everything, because we're not united anymore. We don't have these units anymore. We're not paying attention to what's going on because we're already chaotic in our own lives. So let's focus on what's happening to the children and let's get the situation dealt with. Brilliant. Totally support that. And last question. How, how do you see 2024? When when this interview goes out, it'll be some at some point over the Christmas holiday period. So I suspect it'll be before the new year. How how do you see twenty twenty four? What what's what what's your priority for the new year? 
So we started the new year with a series of presentations. We're doing presentations on the consequence of consent, how to safeguard the children, the sex education organizations out there and their lack of evidence. So we started the year on education. Then we go in straight in for advocacy. We are training up this country as much as we can on how to advocate for themselves, how to advocate for their children, their neighbor, and most importantly, how to empower the children in this situation. That is another thing. And by September 2024, we do hope to have our own resources out there to counteract this stuff that's already going on in schools. So we hope to be able to go out there in the community, show mothers how to safeguard their children, put together training packages for professionals, community groups and everything else. We pretty much go out there, we're doing it ourselves. We will have this stuff ready by September, 2024. Brian, if we had money, we would be dangerous. Well, you, I'm going to say you are dangerous in the right way because you've achieved a huge amount already. Um, I think I'm allowed to, to add to that, that UK Column has done uh, its bit to try and help you on the financial front and we'll continue to do that. But what you say is absolutely true because it doesn't matter what the battle is, when you stand up to fight at some stage, you need money for travel, uh, travel or printing or brochures or attendance at meetings, whatever it is. So it's nothing to be squeamish about. And certainly we will be delighted to do our bit to help you do some fundraising. On that little point, I think I should mention Louise Collins because it's been Louise. Louise has given me lots of encouragement to support you guys, but also um, to get stuck in on some of those wonderful podcaster thongs that you did to raise some money. So that that was quite productive, I think. I don't know. I think, I think she... She really did take us into that fundraiser properly, you know. We struggled for such a long time, Brian. And then she got us like at 20% after the first um podcast-a-thon. And then it just all seemed to be much easier from there. Then we then we had a third of the money, you know. So she really did help boost that. She raised awareness as well, not just um, you know, for her audience, but the people who she had on the podcast, you know, they all connect with other people as well. So she did, the way I view things, she did us an incredible job uh, raising money for us to pay the fees. But I, I, I view things in the service towards the children. And I think she's done the children a phenomenal service. I have to be honest. It's definite, definitely up there with the best of them, you know, and we can't thank Louise enough. And we know it's been difficult for her as well, you know. Um, we only we know what goes on in each other's lives during the scene, you know. It's not easy. It's like I've ice skating uphill, but um, we massively, we massively appreciate Lou. We really, really, really do. Well, and and isn't it interesting? Because I just mentioned Lou, but what have we got? We got another gutsy woman there. So I've got it down on my list because I'm going to interview Lou as well. I've known her for a very long time, but I thought, okay, the time has come to put Lou Collins on the gutsy woman list. Kim, I'm going to say thank you very much for giving up your time tonight to speak to me. It's It's been really brilliant. And I've got a feeling that this interview is going to make a difference with the audience um, because you've, you know, you've really said it how it is. You know, you've come through a difficult, quite a difficult, challenging background. 
that's taught you a lot. And here you are five foot and you're standing up and doing man's work. So you get the Gutsy Woman Award from me. Thank Just you, keep going for 2024. Thank you very much. We don't intend to stop. Like I said, these these things that we thought that I personally thought were massive problems for society. I can't help but see this as a bittersweet moment, Brian. You know, we, we're getting closer to actually putting things in place to properly look after our children. You know, I can almost taste it. Yeah, brilliant. All right, we'll leave it there. And I'm going to say to you, if I don't speak to you beforehand, have a good Christmas and have a break. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Kim.